With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. With all the numbers and all the plaudits given to Tony Gwynn, the thing I would remember the most, his smile. There are those who smile and get rid of it right away. There are those who smile and then it kind of drips off their face. And then there are those rare ones who will smile and it will just stay in the air and make you feel better. And that was Tony Gwynn. Welcome to the Fire Pit with Matt Janella. Good to be back again sharing with you the stories that mean something to me. And while most of those stories have a hook and a tie to golf, this story, this series of stories about the life and legacy of Tony Gwynn, is a passion project that started when I was a kid. An amateur baseball card collector in Santa Rosa, California, I'd squirrel away rookie cards into plastic sleeves and I stuffed my face with the sticks of Topps bubblegum. In the late 70s and the early 80s, I was more into individual players than I was, say, the San Francisco Giants who played an hour south of where I lived. I loved Willie Randolph of the New York Yankees because I played second base and so did Willie. I loved Goose Gossage because who doesn't love a guy who goes by the name Goose? When Gossage, Steve Garvey, and Greg Nettles, another one of my favorites, ended up on the Padres in 1984, that's when I remember planting my flag as an official fan of the Friars, which was good timing. With Tony Gwynn, Kevin McReynolds, Carmelo Martinez in the outfield, plus Garvey at first, Nettles at third, Gary Templeton at short, Alan Wiggins at second, and Terry Kennedy behind the plate, plus Eric Shaw, Andy Hawkins, Mark Thurmond, Ed Whitson, Dave Dravecki as key starters, the Goose as the dominant closer. They came back to beat the Cubs in the playoffs and ultimately lost to the Detroit Tigers in the 84 World Series. The Padres cruised into the playoffs, winning their first division title by 12 games. And after they erased a two-game deficit against the Cubs in the NLCS, the knockout blow came off the bat of San Diego's emerging superstar. Padres had never gone to the World Series or won a pennant. So we were the first to do that in San Diego. To have him blossom in 84 and lead us to the World Series was something special. Though the Padres would fall to the Detroit Tigers in five games in the World Series, for Gwen and the city of San Diego, a love affair was just beginning. At night, in just the right conditions, I could listen to the Padres games on the radio. Still do. My perfect day is working in the yard and listening to baseball on the radio. Tony Gwynn was and always will be my sports hero. He's shoulder to shoulder with Arnold Palmer and Joe Montana. I was always Magic Johnson over Larry Bird, Tiger Woods over Phil Mickelson. But it was Tony Gwynn's humility, consistency, work ethic, and style of play it was the fact that he never left San Diego for a bigger market or more money. And it was the way he conducted himself off the field that made me, in my mind, his number one fan. 
I have a signed jersey that's in a frame, pages of his rookie card that are in boxes in my garage. I have Tony Gwynn t-shirts that go back almost 20 years. My favorite number is 19. I share my love of Gwynn with my kids. You know the drill. It has always been so easy to be a Tony Gwynn fan. Not always easy being a Padres fan, especially living on the East Coast for 25 years. As a Sports Illustrated employee and working on the baseball beat at the time, I went to every game of the 1998 World Series in which the Padres were swept by the Yankees. Devastating, not just for me, but I remember feeling heartbroken for Tony Gwynn. How many more chances would he have to be on a team that wins a World Series? The answer, of course, was none. Gwen retired three years later. He'd go on to coach at San Diego State for 12 seasons, and he dabbled in broadcasting. Tony Gwynn was married to Alicia, his childhood friend and high school sweetheart, for 33 years. They had two children, Anthony Jr. and their daughter, Anisha. After a long battle with cancer, Tony Gwynn died on June 16, 2014. He was only 54. This morning, the San Diego Padres and Major League Baseball lost a beloved family member. Hall of Fame outfielder Tony Gwynn passed away at the age of 54 following a courageous battle with cancer. A 15-time All-Star, winner of eight batting titles and five gold gloves, Tony Gwynn was one of the most respected and gracious players to have ever played this game. Ladies and gentlemen, please join in a moment of silence as we remember Tony Gwynn. So cut to November of 2020, my wife and I decided to move our family from Winter Park, Florida and settled in San Diego. Only days into our new surroundings, we were out to dinner with some friends, the Spooners, and Tim, who's also a diehard Padres fan, started talking about how he played Little League with Tony Gwynn Jr. I had no idea. He said they had stayed in contact and then Tony Gwynn Jr., a lot like his dad, was pure class. Tim Spooner proceeded to tell me his personal story about Tony Gwynn, which we get into in episode two of this tribute series. And then I asked Tim if he'd be willing to connect me with Tony Gwynn Jr. The goal, very selfishly, was to learn more about my idol. I wanted to produce a tribute podcast series about how and why Tony Gwynn was so great, not only on the field, but off the field. Start with the cold hard facts, the 338 lifetime, the eight batting titles. But there was something else about Tony Gwynn that made him relatable and endearing. What a day, <laughs> what a game, what a country. If you were central casting and you were looking for someone to play a baseball hero, at least by physical type, he might not be the guy. But he was so down to earth, he was approachable. Thank you. Thank you. For a guy that was as big as Tony was, he never acted that way. He was the most approachable, big-time star I've ever been around. Hi, I'm Tony Gwynn of the San Diego Padres. And so here we are, episode one of three in which I tip my cap to Tony Gwynn. In addition to Major League Baseball's tribute to Tony Gwynn's iconic career, I get help from people like Ken Griffey Jr., Ryan Sandberg, Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, Trevor Hoffman, Tom Ferducci, and sure enough, Tim Spooner delivered Tony Gwynn Jr. Before we get started, I want to thank Link Soul for their support of this podcast and the Fire Pit Collective in general. I've been a brand ambassador of the lifestyle brand since 2013, and it's pretty much all I wear on and off the course every day, all day. 
Go to linksoul.com and use promo code FIREPIT25 for 25% off your next purchase. Anthony Keith Gwynn was born in Los Angeles, California on May 9, 1960. The middle son of three boys, he attended Long Beach Poly High School where he played baseball, excelled, and loved basketball. At San Diego State, he was the star point guard where he still has career records in assists, and Gwynn was also able to play baseball for the Aztecs for three seasons. Here's Jack McKeon, the longtime general manager of the San Diego Padres. We always had an annual exhibition game with the Padres and the Aztecs day before opening day. I'm sitting up in the box with the athletic director. Tony comes up, hits a double, watch him run the bases. Comes up the next time, hits a triple. I said, who the hell is this guy? He said, that's Tony Gwynn. I said, where's he been? I've seen you play 15 games. I haven't seen this guy. He said, he just came out last week. I said, this is the best guy on that field. And that was including major leaguers as well. Sure enough, on June 9th, 1981, Tony Gwynn was drafted by San Diego twice as both a baseball and basketball player. Big day in the Gwynn household that day. He got drafted by the Padres, then the Clippers, who were in San Diego then. I mean, it was the story here that he got drafted by both local teams. Not being a big guy, he chose baseball. What would have been interesting, if Tony was, you know, a 6'6 guard, would he have gone with basketball, his first love? We'll never know that. The same week he got drafted, we got married. He was just so happy, and I remember him saying, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to work hard. I'm probably going to play about five years, and then I'll go on to do something else. He never thought he would be that good. Gwynn played one full season in the minors, hitting 462 in AA, and on July 19, 1982, he made his debut in the big leagues. Gwen would fly through the minors in 1981, winning a batting title and league MVP award. The next season, barely a year out of college, he was in the majors and attracting the attention of all-time greats. You know, Tony's playing his first game against the Phillies, gets his first hit, and Pete Rose says, hey, kid. Pete Rose comes up to me and shakes my hand and, and says, uh, you're trying to catch me after one night, you know, and it just it, the whole atmosphere of that was just was really nice. Well, that was the first hit. 3,140 hits later, Gwynn's stats are staggering. And we'll get to all those and all of his accomplishments throughout this series. There are plenty of stories and anecdotes, special moments and sweet reflections by his Hall of Fame peers, an award-winning writer, and his son, Tony Gwynn Jr. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I've enjoyed piecing all of this together. Meet Tom Verducci. A former colleague at Sports Illustrated, he has also done a lot of TV for TBS, Fox, and Major League Baseball, and has covered the sport for over 40 years. In 2020, Verducci was elected to the National Sports Media Association's Hall of Fame. I say Tony Gwynn, and you say... <laughs> Artist. <laughs> Artist as a hitter. Just a pure craftsman. That's what I think about. I uh, wasn't just talented, because anybody could see that, but... The work behind the work, that's kind of the craftsmanship that I think about with Tony Gwynn, all the work in the cage, all the studying that he did. So great hitter. Everybody knows that, but it didn't come by accident. Here's Greg Maddox, a four-time Cy Young Award winner who led the National League in wins three times, led the majors in ERA four times, 
and was inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame in 2014. I say Tony Gwynn and you say... A pure hitter. If you needed one guy to put the bat on the ball, he's your guy. He, I don't think anybody was better at it than he was. He, he, he never missed. <laughs> when he swung, he made contact. He, he, uh, he found the barrel of the bat probably more than any other hitter in the game. I loved the chance to get to talk to John Smoltz, an eight-time All-Star, a Cy Young Award winner. He was the National League's wins leader in 1996 and 2006, saves leader in 2002. Smoltz was inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame in 2015. I say Tony Gwynn and you say... Greatest hitter I've ever been around. Probably the greatest hitter in my lifetime uh, from the standpoint of... I mean, it was a gift, but he perfected it. And, you know, we'll never see another hitter like that until baseball changes philosophically. Ryan Sandberg played 16 seasons in the majors, his first with the Philadelphia Phillies in 1981, and the rest with the Chicago Cubs. One of the greatest second basemen to ever swing a bat, Sandberg won seven Silver Slugger Awards, nine Gold Gloves, and was the MVP of the National League in 1984. Sandberg was inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame in 2005. When I say Tony Gwynn, what do you say? National League's leading hitter. You know what? The reason why it was a big deal for us to um, uh, keep up with the, uh, the top 10 hitters in the league usually by USA Today or Sporting News. Uh, they didn't have, we didn't have all the internet and all that as much, uh, if any, back then. But it was getting up, picking up the USA Today. Once a week, they'd have all the hitting stats on the, on the back page of the, sport, uh, of the uh, sports section. But there was a section, uh, top 10 hitters, National League, top 10 American League. His name was up there, had to be up there if not all the time, majority of the time. And then uh, myself and uh, teammates like Sean Dunstan, Mark Grace, when we start talking about leading the league and hitting and all that, you know, the first thing that after we thought about it, you know, Tony Gwynn is going to be that person. So let's, let's, let's shoot for the next spot for sure. And here's Trevor Hoffman, one of the game's greatest closers who notched 601 saves. He played for the Padres for 15 seasons, almost eight of those with Tony Gwynn as a teammate. He was a seven-time All-Star. He was the National League's saves leader in 1998 and 2006, and he was inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame in 2018. Like Tony Gwynn, there's a statue of Trevor Hoffman outside of Petco Park. I say Tony Gwynn and you say... Pro, just a, a professional hitter, professional teammate, professional athlete. I just think uh, you personified it here in San Diego. Back to Tom Verducci, who starts a section on what made Tony Gwynn so great. Well, there's some guys who picked up spots on the ball, but I think Tony and Ted, and I'll throw Barry Bonds in the same category here. They had that, it's almost like an extra sense. It wasn't just vision, great eyesight, you know, literally, whether it was 2010 or whatever it was, uh, it was the perception combined with terrific eyesight. In other words, they could see the ball, the direction coming out of the hand, maybe it popped up slightly to, to give a, a tip off that it's a curveball, ball uh, or being able to pick up the spins, uh, uh, the seams as they spun, which is more, you would see in a curveball. fastball. It's just kind of blurry. The things that a lot of hitters need time to process those great hitters, Williams, Gwynn, Bond, they picked it up like that. 
And hitting is time management. That's what hitting is. The more time you have, the easier it is to hit. So if you can pick up the pitch earlier, you're on time, you understand, you're not fooled as much. I mean, I dare anybody to go back on whatever video exists and you go find me a swing that Tony Gwynn took where he was off balance. I don't know if you'll find one. And you think about a guy who played for as long as he did. um, Part of that was be able to pick up the ball so easily. So yeah, it was a gift that he had. He certainly worked at it, but I think it's one of the reasons why Ted and, and Tony connected so well, not just being from San Diego, but the fact that they could look at baseball and speak a language that was above everybody else. Greg Maddox. He was uh, able to control where he hit the ball. I think that's kind of what made him so good is if uh, he could actually look at the defense and, you know, where they say kind of hit it where they ain't, you know, you hear that in baseball all the time. He, he was the best at it, but I think he could see the shortstop. If he was playing up the middle or in the hole, he was capable of going to either side of the shortstop as well as anybody. John Smoltz. People don't really understand how good of an athlete he was. Like, you know, he may not have looked the part at the end of his career, but he was a tremendous athlete with great hand-eye coordination, great basketball player. So he was an athletic hitter. And, you know, we look at the bodies today and they're never been greater, but they're not really athletic hitting. They're, they're machines trying to hit the ball over the wall. They have one, ob- one objective and that's swing hard, swing up, Tony had, you know, in the era that we played, it was a badge of honor to not strike out. Nobody did it better than him. And he would be one of those people today that we would look at analytically, ah, too much soft contact. No, he sought and hunted hits and he got more hits than most people would have gotten because his ability to cover the plate. Like if I had to go back in time, I've said this all the, all I'd throw it right down the middle. Because anywhere you threw it, he exploited that part of the field because he could wait longer and serve it the other way or pull the trigger inside. He hit some of the nastiest pitches that you could throw. And so if I had to go back, I would just go right down the middle and maybe confuse him. And and he wouldn't maybe know what to do at at first. He would adjust. And plus, I would have probably told him what was coming. I would have just said, here's what's coming. Ryan Sandberg. First of all, he was one of the few hitters that, in my era, he used a 33-inch bat, which was at least an sh- inch shorter than most of the other bats. I used a 34-inch. Andre Dawson, for instance, 34 and a half. Some guys 34 inches long. He had 33-inch bat. He stood fairly close to the plate. He had a really nice batting stance. Uh, not quite uh, like Pete Rose, but a little bit more upright, but he had a nice crouch. So his, his strike zone was just slightly bigger than a shoebox. And after he established himself after 84 and the batting titles, I mean, then the strike zone gets even smaller for those types of hitters. I experienced that a little bit uh, throughout my career. But he was, uh, with, with that shorter bat, he was able to be, just wait so long on the pitch, and this ball was coming back. He let it travel back. And um, real short stroke, um, pretty stroke. And his, his game plan was to square the ball up five times a game if he had five at-bats. Uh, home run never came into his mind. Uh, swinging in the air never came into his mind, but square the ball up. That meant absolute bullet line drives, gappers, line to line, um, 
And that pretty approach swing that he had hitting a line drive over the shortstop's head as a left-handed hitter. And I asked Trevor Hoffman if he and Tony ever talked about whether or not Tony would have been able to hit Hoffman's best stuff. We did have some conversation about, you know, what he would have seen via my changeup because he flat out said, I would be able to pick up your fingers up off the ball on your changeup. And he, he goes, I wouldn't have been fooled with the arm speed like so many other hitters kind of did. Like they didn't pick up fastball changeup one way or the other until it was too late. He goes, and it, partly because his vision was so much better than everybody else, but I think he had the ability to slow things down. And we talked about a little bit earlier about always putting yourself, you know, in a position to hit. He was always on time. And so when you're on time, you aren't rushed. When you're not rushed, things slow down. And when things are slowing down, you're able to see things a little differently. And so I think it made a lot of sense that that was something he was he would have been able to do on a consistent basis. And let's face it, he, he, he hit, you know, the, the greats of the greats of our generation, the Randy Johnsons and the Greg Maddox, um, like they were a rookie. So, you know, he had success across the board. As Trevor suggests, Tony Gwynn was in the heads of some of the best pitchers of his generation. We go back to Tom Verducci. I remember Ronnie Darling telling me that he was his toughest batter to face. And Ron said he was so difficult because he could hit any pitch. And then Ron would find himself outthinking himself because he was trying to outthink Tony Gwynn. You're not doing that, man. You are not outthinking Tony Gwynn. He's prepared for everything. He can cover everything in and out, up and down, fast and slow. So Ron said the same thing that I should have been better off just telling my catcher, let him know it's a fastball down the middle because he, he said too many times I just outthought myself and I walked right into his trap. So, I mean, think about that. Baseball is a game where the pitcher is the one he's on defense, but literally he's on offense, right? He initiates the action. The pitcher is going to get you out a lot more times than you're going to get him. Tony Gwynn was one of the few guys that seemed to flip the odds where pitchers seemed to be like they were defending themselves against the guy at the plate. And that hitting is supposed to be a reactionary position, but Tony made it almost like an aggressive position. Tony Gwynn faced Ron Darling 56 times. He had 25 hits for a 446 batting average. Here's Greg Maddox. Tony Gwynn and Barry Bonds, those two hitters were the first time I realized you beat lineups and not hitters. So, uh, you know, my game plan against Tony was to, it's okay to give up a single, but you have to get the other eight guys out. So you got to make sure you get Ken Caminetti out or uh, uh, Fernandez, I believe. God, it's been so long ago. Tony Fernandez. Yeah, Greg Vaughn, a lot of those guys. I think think Tony Fernandez hit in front of him and Caminetti hit behind him one year. And it's it's almost like you have to get the guys out before him and the guy out after him. And then, uh, you know, the single won't hurt you too bad. But uh, he was a a good hitter, uh, incredible eyesight. And uh, I learned probably five or six years into the game that, he was able to uh, recognize off-speed pitches probably better than anybody uh, just based on his eyesight. We, we, we had an eye doctor that did a bunch of eye tests and uh, said Tony Gwynn was hands down the, the best at picking up the speed of the ball. So uh, I made a comment to him, uh, so I should throw my off-speed pitches slower. And he goes, no, it's the other way around. You should throw your off-speed pitches harder. So uh, 
I didn't have hardly any success against him the first five or six years I faced him. And uh, I started throwing change-ups as hard as I could. And it's like he finally reached for one. And, uh, you know, I kind of give the credit to the uh, eye guy, part scientist guy <laughs> that uh, suggested that I throw my off-speed pitches harder to him rather than slower. You take fooling him to the next level. Instead of fooling him with a changeup that goes slow, you fool him with a changeup that actually goes fast. Exactly. He was able to pick up the, the speed differential if, you know, there was seven or eight miles an hour off the baseball. But if he took two or three off or four, that's when you seem to catch him just enough on the end of the bat. Smoltz, said if he had to do it all over again, he might just uh, throw it right down the middle and actually tell him he's throwing it right down the middle oh. as a way of just basically saying, I, you know, I can't get you out. Hopefully you can get yourself out. <laughs> yeah. I heard a guy saying that, you know, Rick Sutcliffe said uh, he used to throw him BP fastballs and had success with BP fastballs. And uh, I never threw a BP fastball, but I could throw my changeup harder, which probably looked more like a BP fastball. So, uh, uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of guys, there was a lot of guessing going on with him, but uh, you know, I just, it just got to the point where just keep him in the park. A single's okay. You know uh, he didn't run much the second half of his career. And, you know, if you could, if you can have him hitting with, with one or two outs and nobody on and get the next guy out, you're probably going to skate through that inning pretty well. Here's John Smoltz on the success Gwynn had against the Braves' big three. Smoltz, Maddox, and Tom Glavin, yet another Hall of Famer. I don't know the total number of bats that he faced the three of us, but I know it was a lot. And he only struck out three times. So let's say it's close to 200 times, 170 times he faced Maddox, Glavin, and myself, or whatever the number is. 249. All right. So 249 at-bats, he struck out three times. And collectively, you know, we have over 9,000 strikeouts between us. So that's the, that's the kind of frustration when you think of facing Tony Gwynn, especially when there was runners on. You felt defeated because the, the odds of you getting him out without him getting the run in we're, uh, we're not in your favor. By the way, you can throw Pedro Martinez in that group of, of you, Glavin, and Maddox, and that goes to 323 at-bats, and it's still just three strikeouts. So Pedro Martinez never struck out Tony Gwynn, and he had his yeah. – and and you struck him out once, and Glavin struck him out, Glavin struck him out twice. So right. do you even recall the one time you struck him out? I really don't. Um, and it, it's mind-boggling. I recall a lot of things about Tony Gwynn. I recall – um, I had, I, I say this all the time. I had a no hitter going against the Padres in San Diego and, and I knew I was going to get a no hitter. It was one of those few games where I was just locked in had given up no hits going into the eighth inning, two outs. And Tony Gwynn was up. Never once thought about walking, uh, I faced him, And, you know, I, he hit kind of a ball to, to, to left, left field. And Ryan Clusco ran about 20 feet and, he, I, I thought he had it. it. It was in his glove, and then it dropped out. Well, at that point in the game, I just knew that was an error. And the official score ruled it a double. And I went kind of crazy afterwards. I got taken out of the game in eight innings. I think I had 12 or 13 strikeouts. And I said, Bobby, let me pitch the ninth. They have to change it. And Bobby said, that's Tony Gwynn. They're not changing it. And it's their ballpark. And I was so mad. And I saw Tony in a couple different events and he would always chuckle, you know, knowing what I was going to talk to him about. And like, 
3,000 whatever or whatever less one hit, I don't think was going to rob you of your career. And he, he would just chuckle knowing that he got the benefit of uh, being the greatest all-time hitter. So uh, that was my no-hitter I talk about that I never got, that I should have had, and Tony Gwynn was uh, the reason I didn't get it. Tony Gwynn ended his career with 3,141 hits, which puts him 20th all-time, one behind Robin Yount, who had almost 1,800 more at-bats than Gwynn. 21st on the all-time hit list is Alex Rodriguez, who Gwynn got by 26 hits, even though A-Rod played two more seasons than Gwynn and had 1,278 more at-bats. Here's Trevor Hoffman. The one stat that um, I can say with certainty is I've seen T hit over 400 for a season. And it's partly because I came over in J- end of June 1993 – um, from the Marlins and it seemed like he was getting two hits a night for the rest of that season. And then the 94 season was obviously crazy and he was hitting 394 when it ended, but you go June 24th or 5th when I came over and we'll give a leave a little extra leeway to July 1st of 1994, like his batting average the time that I was there for the year was over 400. So uh, I think I was, I'm the last guy that's been able to say I've seen somebody hit 400 for a season. I looked it up. From July 2nd, 1993 to August 11th, 1994, Tony Gwynn played in 166 games. He had 646 at-bats. He recorded 258 hits, giving him a batting average of 399-3. In that stretch that Trevor refers to, he had three or more hits in 28 games, only struck out 25 times he never went more than two games in a row without a hit and one game worth noting on august 4th 1993 versus the giants gwen went six for seven with two doubles padres won the game in 12 innings 11 to 10 so a career 338 hitter in 20 seasons the list of mesmerizing tony gwen stats could fill a roll of paper towels In reporting podcasts on the career of Alan Shipnuck and a Sports Illustrated cover shot by the great Walter Yost, I got the chance to interview Ken Griffey Jr. This was Jr.'s quick thoughts on Gwyn's greatness. Some people just look like they stand in the second base all day. (laughs) Some people, you know, they come up to the plate and the next thing you know, you stand in the second going, how do you get there so quick? (laughs) He just got up. They just, did they finish announcing his name? I mean, it it becomes comical. Uh, uh, you know, certain, you know, but you look at the history of the game and, and look at the guys who played and look at the numbers that they put up. And it's like Bugs Bunny numbers. It's like, you know, these guys who just young 500 wins and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, huh? <laughs> On the subject of Bugs Bunny numbers, here are a few of my favorites as they relate to Tony Gwynn, who in 20 seasons as a Padre only hit below 309 one year. That was his rookie year, 1982, in which he hit 289. Gwynn's 162-game average of strikeouts was 29. Compare that to Wade Boggs, the kind of the Tony Gwynn of the American League who played 18 seasons and had a career batting average of 328. Boggs' 162-game average of strikeouts was 49, 20 more per year than Gwynn. Although Boggs had more doubles than Gwynn, Tony got the best of Boggs in triples, home runs, extra base hits, 
and batting titles. Boggs won five, Gwynn won eight. This stat, courtesy of A.J. Cassavell, a writer for MLB.com, if you include postseason play, Gwynn, in his career, faced 18 Hall of Fame pitchers for a total of 541 plate appearances, essentially a full season's worth of at-bats. Gwynn's average against that collective group of elite pitchers, he hit 331. For more on Gwynn's stats, we go back to our panel of Hall of Famers. I asked Tom Verducci about the idea that if Gwynn played another two seasons, and in those two seasons, he went 0 for 1,183 at-bats, he'd still have a career batting average at 300. It's it's crazy to think about that. First of all, he I don't even know what his worst slump is. So it, to say Tony was 0 for 4, it seemed like he was overdue. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be that far over 300 with that much room to take an offer, if you just wanted to, to chill out the rest of your career and retire at 300, that's crazy. I mean, that's Tony Gwynn is the batting average, kind of what Babe Ruth is to home runs when you look at it that way. Here's Greg Maddox. He faced you more than any. That's it's amazing, you know. And, and I know you've you've heard it a million times, probably. But he faced you more than any other pitcher and hit four fifteen against you. That just yeah. outlandish. That's, yeah, that's uh, it was up to four eighty five. <laughs> so, I actually don't feel too bad about the four fifteen, to be honest with you. You know, because I know at one time, I think that's when I started throwing him change ups a lot harder. He was up. I saw where he was. I don't know. It was 14 for 27 or something like that. It was ridiculous. And, uh, uh, you know, the game plan was to just, Hey, if he wants to hit a two hopper to the left fielder, go ahead. I got John Smoltz's reaction to the idea. Gwynn could go over two seasons and still have a career batting average over 300. It's incredible. I don't know how many, um, New age players really know about Tony Gwynn. Uh, it's a style that has not been popular in this game for. I hope it comes back. I really do. I hope. I hope there's a way that baseball realizes the importance of guys like Tony Gwynn, who, who could hit for average, get on base, and use their athleticism. I think it's a part of the game that's been a little bit missing. And if we can get back to that, you're going to see the action um, kind of pick back up and let the Bombers do what they do and let them hit their homers. But I think there's a place for the guy that seeks and hunts hits. So in regular season play, without counting playoffs, he was 98 for 249 against uh, you, Glavin, and Maddox, which is 394. Uh, and then 394 is what he hit in 1994 in the strike-shortened season of 110 games. He hit 394, which is a fun – Just a fun, and now they've made a beer in San Diego called 394. <laughs> yeah, again, um, you know, I didn't mind watching him face other people, but I certainly didn't like facing him on the mound um, because – I'm a big competitor and want to always try to figure out how to make the necessary adjustments, as you talked about earlier. And he was just somebody I couldn't, I couldn't make the adjustment against. And uh, it's a tribute to his uh, style. It got so bad for Smoltz that at one point he figured, heck, I got nothing to lose. This was the ultimate white flag. I caved in and I threw him a knuckleball and he laughed at me. The knuckleball was a strike that could call the ball, but he looked at me like, okay, uh, you've tried everything you can try now, <laughs> a knuckleball, and he laughed at me. And uh, so, yeah, I was uh, I was trying. I was drawing at straws at that point. 
he sat on the knuckleball, watched it, he hit sat the club, on it, and he looked at you and laughed. Yeah, yeah. That that first of all, I started messing with knuckleball, knowing I was headed for Tommy John. So I I had been flirting with knuckleballs that that season, and uh, I couldn't wait to break it out to Tony Gwynn because I wanted to see what he you know what he would do with a knuckleball. I throwing him everything else, and he just looked at it, probably recognized it. And just looked at me and kind of smiled. And I went, oh, shoot. (laughs) Here's Ryan Sandberg on the fact that Gwynn, with two strikes against him in the count, finished with a career batting average of 302. Again, Boggs, who's second on that list, hit 262. Well, he was so tough because he was so short at the ball. He, he, with two strikes, he wasn't, he was still fine. He would put the ball in play. He'd give himself a chance. Um, and no doubt about it. He, I mean, he was a tough strikeout on top of it. He, it didn't matter. Two strikes, it didn't matter. And he still knew his strike zone. He, he, he was able to see the ball and wait on it so long and just have an approach of just hit the baseball somewhere. It, um, which takes, takes you know, it, it, how do you pitch to that? I remember certain pitchers that I played behind say, you know, forget the scouting report. We know who he is. We know he's going to get three hits. But the, the pitcher would say, I'm just going to throw somewhat of a BP fastball down the middle because that's not what he's looking for. <laughs> he's looking for the pitcher's stuff and what he would think the pitcher, how the pitcher would face him. Sandberg told me that Gwynn told him that he struggled to hit at Wrigley Field. Well, he shared that with me. You know, he, he had some struggling years, and all of a sudden they start to pile up a little bit. I, I, mean, I mean, an 0 for 4 in a walk, or 0 for 3 in a walk, or 1 for 5, you know, something like that. Uh, and then occasionally he'd have a good game, but for, for the most part, he had a hard time with Wrigley Field. I think the grass being so high... Uh, that those ground balls now uh, would be gobbled up. Um, hmm. He he said he really noticed the wind direction, which is not it blows out maybe uh, ten times out of eighty one games. It's about ten that it blows straight out. The rest is a side wind each way. The left field foul pole to the uh, first base uh, first base dugout or the, or vice versa. Wind blowing straight in, and I think all just all that. Um, Sometimes I know how it goes as a major league player. Sometimes you have a, a, a one place where early on in your career, you struggled for whatever reason and that it never it would never go away. So it's just possible that maybe he struggled early on and then he never really got over that as much, but he still was putting the ball in play. It wasn't because he was striking out, obviously, but he was putting the ball in play. He was hitting the ball in the wind. Um, the higher grass would uh, gobble up the ground balls, infielders could get to them. And so it was a different, uh, a little different for him. Having heard what Sandberg said about Wrigley Field, I did a deeper dive. I went through regular season game logs every time Gwent went to Wrigley. In 20 seasons, I counted 347 at bats. He had 115 hits. That's a Wrigley Field batting average. Again, a place he said he struggled, he hit. 331. While the likes of Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, and Pedro Martinez couldn't keep Gwynn off the bases, it was Nolan Ryan who struck Gwynn out nine times, the most of any pitcher. Gwynn only hit 243 with six strikeouts against Dwight Gooden. And then there was a guy by the name of Frank DePino. 
Gwynn's no-name nemesis. Tony Gwynn was one for 20 against Frank DePino. He's the one guy who had Tony Gwynn's number. Tony Gwynn hit 50 against Frank DePino of all people. So, <laughs> Frank DePino had a funky delivery and he kind of threw, he kind of came set like this and then he, in like in a stretch motion and then he'd just come out of his back pocket. So that was probably one thing and he probably came right out of his uniform. But then he had, he had a hard split finger fastball or fork ball or a, uh, a hard slider that was, it was just one of those pitches. Um, and uh, facing left-handed hitters, you know, Frank Capino was left-handed, so Tony Gwynn left-handed. I could see where that'd be a little bit of a tough, could be a tough matchup. <laughs> that, that, it, that, all stops, that. it all stops there, though, probably. <laughs> Back to Sandberg on what it was like teaming up with Gwynn on nine National League All-Star teams. Uh, but Tony Gwynn, I'd hit in his group because uh, for the most part, I was hitting the second and he was probably hitting third on some all-star teams. So he let, he let off some all-star games, but hitting the same group and just be a part of that up close and personal with all the, with all the all-stars. Uh, it meant so much to be around all those guys that I was around, but with him um, just to see that up close like that and see the routine. But like I say, I watched him every time I had a chance to, uh, to watch his routine and uh, so I just got to follow in, kind of emulate uh, his, his ball a little bit. Back to Tom Verducci. You mentioned some of the stats, and they are crazy about Tony Gwynn. It seems like almost going back to like the 19th century when you think about some of the things putting bat to ball because guys just don't do it today. I think there was one year because, you know, we do think of Tony as getting all these singles, right? And he had a million of them. Um, but he could do so many things on a baseball field, including run, right? There was a year early in his career, he hit over 370 with more than 50 stolen bases. He's the only player to do that in the last hundred years to have a batting average that high and steal that many bases. And I remember, this is what really stands out in my mind, game one of the 1998 World Series, David Wells is on the mound. And Tony Gwynn hits one, a bomb to the upper deck in right field at Yankee Stadium. I mean, I was in the press box and you could almost hear the jaws drop onto the counter. Tony Gwynn, singles hitter, upper tank, Yankee Stadium. After the game, I think the Yankees won the game. So, you know, the Padres weren't in especially good mood anyway. But it's like the only time I saw Tony where he was let's say even slightly cranky because the New York writers kept asking him about hitting the ball that high and that far. It's like they couldn't believe Tony Gwynn, Mr. 300 hitter, you know, Mr. Single could hit a ball that far. He was chapped about it. He's like, haven't they seen me play? Haven't they seen me hit? I can turn on a ball if I want to. And you know what? He's right. He did hit plenty of home runs. He did have power. It wasn't really his calling card but he could do it when the moment called for it at a Yankee stadium where you get rewarded for pulling the ball. He did that against David Wells. So I think, you know, sometimes Tony gets shortchanged by the skills that he did have. When you think about defense, gold glove outfielder, stealing bases, and yeah, he could hit for power if the situation called for it. That's one of the most vivid memories I have sitting in the stands with my family. I remember um, we were sitting right across from Denzel and Bruce Willis and little Tony, he was really giving them the business. My brother is a big trash talker and you know, they were just going back and forth. Me and these, these fans were going back and forth and then my dad hit that homer. Rip! 
I mean, I don't think I screamed any louder at a baseball game than that moment. Tony Gwynn goes deep with his first postseason home run to put San Diego out in front, 4-2. I don't think I had ever seen my dad smack a ball that hard before. That was like top deck. Okay. All right, Dad. To me, that's the biggest hit I got because in the World Series, there's no bigger stage than playing in Yankee Stadium. Gwen would hit 500 in that series, but the Padres were swept, making them 0-2 in the Fall Classic over his career. He did all he could to help us win. You know, we just ran into a juggernaut, but I think, you know, the country saw how great uh, Tony Gwen was in that World Series. This is where we're going to stop down for a second. In episode two, we sit down with Tony Gwynn Jr. We hear more about Tony Gwynn, the father, grandfather, innovator, and why, in the end, even for Mr. Padre, it was blood before baseball. He was in the press box. He wasn't working that day, uh, but he, he stayed for the game. And uh, I, I think people expected him to have some type of disappointment, but he had, he had the exact opposite because it was his son. And he was in there. He was. It was probably good he wasn't on TV because he was in there fist pumping and, you know, happy as heck for me to, to get that hit. Put another log on the fire. Nobody here is getting tired 